It works for me. Okay, I've done my service. Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> I'm Deb Hastings. I direct continuing nursing education here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And thank you for coming in the middle of this busy Tuesday morning to um, hear from our, um, our speaker. We're happy to have you here. And for those of you who are watching from your own computers, again, welcome. Um, we're happy to present this special series, uh, Nursing Grand Round series, where we do focus on elements of global health. Um, and so it's part of how we strive to meet the needs of our diverse patient populations. And we are very honored to learn from our guest speaker today, who will be addressing the health care needs of Native, Native American and Alaska Native populations. And I do want to thank my friend and colleague from Dartmouth College, Christine Holden, um, who is the Indian Health Services Partnership Coordinator at the college for helping to arrange this presentation. You always come through and we've got somebody good coming to us. <laughs> so I want to thank her for keeping us in mind. Um, we're happy to have you and happy to have you here. So the title of today's presentation is A Call to Action for Trauma-Informed Care in the Indian Health System. As we learn more and more about findings from the ACE study, and some of you may have heard our speaker, Bill Brown, a couple of weeks ago talk about his uh, work with the ACE study, we do know that traumatic experiences are common and can have long-term effects for individuals and communities. These effects can increase risk for adverse life outcomes, as well as difficulty in school and employment. This session will explore the concepts of trauma, adverse childhood experiences, and trauma-informed care, particularly as they relate to American Indian and Alaska Native people. At the conclusion of the presentation, you should be able to describe the impact of adverse childhood experiences and discuss future directions for trauma-informed care in Indian country. Uh, after the program, you will receive an email from the Center for Learning and Professional Development. There'll be a link to an online evaluation, and your credit will be posted to your online transcript probably about two weeks after that. Uh, we do appreciate your feedback and hope you will take the time to complete your evaluation. If you're here, please be sure you signed in in order to get your CE credit, and you must uh, stay for 80% uh, of the program to receive the credit. For folks who are viewing online, if you have questions during the presentation, Judy Langhans is here monitoring her email, and she will share your questions with the speaker at the end of the presentation. Her email is judith.m, as in may, dot langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org. Also, for folks viewing online, please email Judy within an hour of the conclusion of this presentation let her know that you did participate, include your name, degree, and zip code. Neither our speaker nor anyone on the planning committee has identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity, and um, no one refused to disclose. So at this time, I'm really excited to introduce our guest speaker, Dr. Beverly Cotton. She is the director of the Division of Behavioral Health for the Indian Health Services. Dr. Cotton received her DMP from Vanderbilt University in 2014. She is a pediatric nurse practitioner, is the former coordinator of the Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner Program for the Indian Health Service, and we are really honored to have you with us today. Thank you Dr. so Cotton. much. Good morning, everyone. 
So it is uh, definitely my pleasure to be here with you this morning. I'm uh, excited to be in New Hampshire. The weather has been fabulous. I hear that this is a little bit unusual for this time of year, uh, but I'm extremely grateful considering I left my jacket in the airport in Boston. So, so I um, think that I've just been incredibly blessed with the weather and haven't really needed to have that. So it's been, um, it's been great. It's been beautiful here. And I think just the opportunity, every opportunity that I get to uh, speak to my nursing colleagues is always uh, a good one for me. Uh, I am, as um, mentioned in the introduction, the director for the Division of Behavioral Health at Indian Health Service Headquarters um, out of Rockville, Maryland. So um, a nurse leader in a very non-traditional role. Um, in a, in a leadership management role at headquarters as uh, leading the Division of Behavioral Health. So underneath the Division of Behavioral Health um, is uh, our mental health program, our alcohol substance abuse program, suicide prevention, uh, domestic and sexual assault medical forensic uh, program. Um, and then we also have a pharmacy that happens to fall under Division of Behavioral Health. Um, and our community health representatives. So um, a rather large portfolio um, falls under the Division of Behavioral Health. Um, not really from a philosophical uh, standpoint, but merely one of uh, management and looking at the integration of services. So when pharmacy came under us, we really were tackling issues of opioid use disorder and thought that uh, it would be a really good fit for Division of Behavioral Health and the pharmacy program to work very closely together on that particular issue. So um, lots, lots and lots of work happens out of um, Indian Health Service headquarters. We serve, um, for those of you that are not keenly aware of Indian Health Service, we serve um, 567 federally recognized tribes across the United States. Uh, with approximately 2.2 million eligible recipients out of the overall um, approximate 3.7 million American Indians and Alaska Natives um, in the United States. The, the other uh, majority of those American Indians and Alaska Natives live largely in urban areas or outside uh, a service area for the Indian Health Service and uh, receive their health care um, from a, a variety of systems. So um, take me and Andrea and Christine, for instance, we're not receiving healthcare from um, our tribe or from our local service unit. Um, we're accessing healthcare much like everyone else. So um, that is a common, I think, uh, misconception that um, uh, American Indians and Alaska Natives may not be eligible for the same services that everyone else is. So helping to, to to bust out of those, um, those myths is always important. What I wanted to talk to you about this morning, though, is trauma and trauma-informed care, um, specifically in the Indian health system and the things that we're doing. But I think from a broader standpoint, we have an opportunity that, uh, to discuss trauma and its impact, and that um, this is a universal concept, so it's not especially unique to the American Indian Alaska Native population, that these are concepts that um, you easily can pick up in your work as well. And so I think that it's always important sort of to start by sorting out what we mean when we use the word trauma. Um, we, we know that 
when we're talking about trauma, people use the terms interchangeably, and there's lots of terms out there when you think about trauma. They talk about stress, toxic stress, traumatic stress, complex trauma, adverse childhood experiences, that there is a variety of terms that folks tend to use interchangeably. And um, I just want to put a few definitions around um, some of these terms so that we're sort of all on the same page when we're talking about how do we actually implement trauma-informed care in our work, um, what do trauma-informed services look like, um, and uh, what are we really trying to address. So, you know, that stress is um, anything that requires a response, good or bad. You know, you can have a healthy dose of response and, uh, of stress and have a, a good um, coping mechanisms in place and stress can be a good thing for you, right? It helps build your resiliency. Um, but then there is the type of stress that um, can completely start to overwhelm you. Um, and that is probably on the next slide of when we start talking about toxic stress and the prolonged um, amounts of stress that we face. But when we're talking about trauma, we really are referring to experiences that cause intense physical and psychological stress reactions. Um, it is that those experiences or events that tend to um, overwhelm our ability to respond. Um, it can refer to a single event or to a set of circumstances that are experienced by an individual that's either physically or emotionally harmful. Um, and, and perceived as threatening. I think the most important thing in, in defining trauma is that what may be traumatic for you may not be traumatic for me, that that really is defined and experienced by the individual, that there's not something that we could say that's really not traumatic. And why would you feel like that was trauma in your life, that you um, need to lead with a different perspective that we're all individuals and our ability to respond to different events looks different all the time. Um, and then the, the biggest thing around um, trauma is that it does have lasting adverse effects. So it impacts our physical, social, emotional, um, and spiritual well-being as well. Oh, I forgot my PowerPoint has all these buttons. <laughs> So all of those things I just told you. <laughs> um, and then I think the last point is really important as well, that any later experiences um, which remind the brain of that prior trauma, um, it can trigger some of the same physical and emotional responses as of the time of the original um, traumatic experience or event. Um, I had an experience, we, we traveled um, to a different country had an opportunity to study abroad when I was getting my master's. Uh, we were with a group of um, a group of students that were getting their um, nurse practitioner as well, and with another group of students from the Washington D.C. area that um, actually were from a school for the deaf. And when we had um, a weekend break, we were going to go up to a lake and do shopping and, and have a really relaxing weekend. Um, on the way up there, uh, we were actually robbed at gunpoint, um, stopped. It was a horrifying experience. They had uh, fatigues and masks. They had machine guns. Um, they were shooting in the air. The, you know, we were terrified because all of the, the safety things that you had gone over 
prior to travel had warned about um, kidnapping of you know American citizens and other things that to be leery of and to be aware of. And so, of course, you think that's never going to happen to you, right? Um, and so it, it seemed like a really traumatic experience. A lot of us uh, needed to go home, and some of us chose to stay and, and finish out the, the study abroad course. Um, but when I went back home, I had a visit um, to New Orleans. We were, went for a weekend and thought we were going to have a great weekend and, and relax. And there was a car that passed by that backfired. And completely, without thinking about it, my body responded by hitting the ground. I, I completely fell down. Um, and it was so, uh, it was such an experience that you didn't feel like you had really a good control over your body. Um, and then sometime after, I had another experience where I was walking down the sidewalk and a man was running and he had an umbrella and he was running to catch a cab, and just that black umbrella in the air, I had that same response, like immediately fell down into um, just trying to protect myself. And, and um, you know, you think about that one incidence of um, a traumatic experience, and some people it was completely paralyzing for. Um, I felt like immediately after the event that, you know, it was, it was scary, but we were fine. Um, I wanted to stay and continue our work there, and it was something that we were incredibly grateful to be safe about uh, or safe from. But the situation, what I didn't realize was how my body remembered that trauma, how my mind remembered that trauma, and how I had certain reactions to that one traumatic event. And those were the really the only two experiences that I remember about that particular um, point in my life until a, a few years, or actually about 10 years later, of having another experience of somebody completely barging like into my office, and it's t completely terrifying me. Uh, me trying to feel like I was gonna cover my face or, or really try to protect myself, and it had been such a long time that I had ever felt that. And um, I just found it really interesting at different periods and points in your life that you can still experience that and the body is so amazing and it's healing and, and everything that it can recover from, but how those traumatic events will impact us and you can still remember some of those things. When we talk about trauma in children and we talk about toxic stress, um, what we're referring to is really the strong, frequent, and prolonged adversity um, like physical or emotional abuse, the chronic neglect, um, caregiver, substance use, or mental illness, exposure to violence, um, and or the accumulated burdens of family economic harsh, hardships without that adequate adult support. Um, so children that are constantly in those adverse environments that um, are facing some of these issues, most likely they're not just facing one. It's usually multiple events. Um, it is prolonged, and I think the key right there is that the, the point where they don't have the adequate adult support, whether that is a, a primary caregiver or someone outside of their life that is um, providing um, caring, letting them know that somebody's there for them, um, can really cause some adverse events in their, in their um, lives as well as um, 
as well as impact later in life and suffer greater consequences. And when we hear of some of these interchangeable terms, you can see how closely related they are um, with complex trauma being, again, um, this is chronic and prolonged cumulative child maltreatment, psychological maltreatment. Um, it, this is really the inescapable exposure, which leads to subsequent or repeated trauma exposure later in life. Um, and so today what I want to do is, is talk about in general terms. Uh, I'm not here to really piece out all of the pieces or, or train you to be trauma experts or in uh, appropriate trauma treatments. Uh, but I think that it always is important for us to um, have a good overview of the different types of trauma in our lives. Um, I'm glad to hear that you've had an opportunity um, hopefully most of you here have also heard the talk on adverse childhood experiences. Um, and what we're talking about here is um, the potentially traumatic events that can have negative lasting effects again on health and well-being for children. Uh, by definition, these experiences typically occur in the first 18 years of life. Um, and of course, we learned more about this with the CDC and, and Kaiser study on um, ACES, one of the largest investigations of adverse childhood experiences uh, for understanding and preventing um, the wide range of health and emotional um, impacts of trauma. So we know that um, there's an increased risk at any level. So you can experience um, one adverse childhood experience or or multiple and that there is a graded dose response relationship. So the more ACEs that you experience, um, it increases your likelihood of having a physical and emotional responses. So that the adverse childhood experiences asked about certain pieces of um, adverse childhood experiences, so physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, family substance abuse, uh, mental illness, incarcerated family members, uh, parental separation or diver divorce, I'm seeing your mother physically abused, physical neglect, and emotional neglect. And so the, the number of categories, these are the, the 10 categories um, experienced before age 18. And what was found was that ACEs can have a lasting effect um, on your health. So you have increased risk for obesity, diabetes, depression, uh, suicide attempts, STDs, heart disease, cancer, stroke, COPD, um, even broken bones. Your behaviors are impacted by your more likely to smoke, um, use alcohol and drugs, and then your life potential, your graduation rates, academic achievement, lost time from work um, are also impacted. And the more, if you had four or more um, ACEs, that the pattern increased for your likelihood um, to have uh, either physical or emotional um, impact from that adverse childhood experience. But um, despite all of that, looking at the way that it, it impacts us and, and why that happens, uh, we definitely know now from science that you have disrupted neurodevelopment, especially um, in early childhood, the impacts around that are um, more significant. So. We are working hard to um, do any early childhood interventions and um, impact parenting as well to improve that. But this 
leads to social and emotional cognitive impairment, your adoption of health risk behaviors, uh, which then leads to the disease, disability, social problems, um, and oftentimes early death as an impact of, of those um, pieces. So I, um, despite uh, all of that grim news, um, I think that we have a lot of hope and, and the nursing field just as the largest workforce out there have an opportunity to impact um, and make a positive change. I wanna show this trailer. So I've had an opportunity to um, uh, present and work with, uh, present this uh, screening with the, um, the principal from Paper Tigers. Has anyone seen this uh, documentary yet? Uh, it's really powerful. So Paper Tigers follows a year in the life of um, Lincoln Alternative High School in uh, Walla Walla, Washington. It, um, after the principal went to a conference and learned about adverse childhood experiences and complex trauma, um, he came back and radically changed um, it's the school's approach to the way that they discipline children, um, the way that they talk to children, and their approaches uh, with, the, with the kids at this high school. Um, three years later, after this, uh, after he implemented trauma-informed care at his high school, um, the number of fights in that school decreased by 75%, and in only three years, their graduation rate increased fivefold. Um, so we had an opportunity last, um, this past August, uh, to even hear from um, Kelsey that is in Paper Tigers. Um, she is doing really well for herself. She's enrolled in college um, and is very well spoken and articulate about her situation and how much the school had an impact on her and her personal life. So let's uh, take a moment to Watch this. Their confidence come back has been incredible. 
Tigers is one of those um, documentary films that is incredibly powerful um, and, and talks about the way that this school and community have really worked to um, transform a group of students that were really viewed as uh, those bad kids, those throwaway kids, those kids at alternative school. Um, and it talked about reframing our thinking around our approaches with um, with those high school students, understanding where they were coming from, the traumas that they faced, versus um, and and versus I think our typical approach in those particular situations. I think that we can relate to that in healthcare as well. We all know those patients. We all <coughs> know them from our communities. We know um, uh, our particular feelings around those certain things and and the way that just our system and culture is framed around serving a particular patient, a minute, but a particular um, patient right population. There. It looks like I blew out that jacket. I can't get any IP. Yeah, it's like, keep saying no network. <laughs> I'm like, that's not good. like and so, no, I, I got a bad feeling. So it looks like, this why I went back in the nursing grand rounds and was set up in quad screen instead of single screen. I don't remember seeing it when we first. Um, so I think uh, uh, yeah. just it shouldn't be even if it wasn't quad screen. What else? There's no real fast. Like I just talk over it. Will that work? Just ask yeah. them to mute. Yeah, the recording we still see it. Um, hi everyone. If you're online, yeah, you mute you, you, your line or your computer. You can hear us, Ray. We can hear you, Ray. Yeah. 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 That's fine. I think you know the the biggest piece where I personally struggled was does this mean that we no longer hold people accountable that they're no longer really responsible for their actions or behaviors and i think that was one of the biggest pieces of getting involved in this work that i had to reconcile that no people are, are can still be held accountable and responsible for their actions but we we've, what we're able to understand is um not and reframing that not what's wrong with you but understanding what happened to them. The problem is that court systems still do not recognize the association between um, childhood trauma and the neuroscience behind it. They just don't. And I think that we have, you know, an obligation in the healthcare field to really get out education that we could be those local champions, that trauma-informed care is not just for, for our system, but when you're looking at an overall community approach and looking at what some cities have done to implement trauma-informed care in their entire communities, 
um, or even their entire states. Like you look at um, trauma-informed Oregon, that they are doing an entire push across the state, uh, that we have an opportunity now with the science um, to, to move forward and to do that type of education. In my experience, I have um, been really surprised to go to different um, meetings and conferences and present to attorneys and judges and law enforcement um, and thought that maybe I was taking new news to them and was pleasantly surprised to be on the agenda to hear all of the work that's being done in court systems to look at um, alternatives to, to incarceration and detention, especially for young people. Um, so it is, uh, there is a lot of promising work out there, even in the courts. And I think where we can make some headway is helping to get this information out there um, in a much better way. When you look at ACEs specifically in Native people, there was a study of ACEs in um, six, over 1,600 American Indian adults um, from seven Southwest um, tribes. And the ACE prevalence was very high in all um, seven tribes studied. Uh, Two-thirds of the participants reported at least one parent with alcohol problems. Um, the most common types of uh, maltreatment are listed there uh, by gender. A third had experienced um, four or more adverse childhood experiences. And, um, and like I was saying, um, in, the, in the CDC Kaiser study, uh, what we learned was anything over uh, four or more ACEs that you have this huge increase um, for all of these um, impacts as a result of, of um, adverse childhood experiences. But particular to the, the Native American community um, is historical trauma. So in addition to the adverse childhood experiences, um, you add on historical trauma, which is a model uh, which explains the present. Um, traumas are and in the way that we uh, define historical trauma is that um, traumas that are uh, often intentionally inflicted and occur at about the same time to a defined group of people. Um, these have um, the same effects that individual traumas can have, but you add on additional um, impacts. Because the trauma is so pervasive, um, and devastate parents as well as children. It disrupts your community and your cultural infrastructure, and they have huge effects on people's and communities' abilities to cope with and adapt to um, traumatic events in the aftermath. Um, our ability to interpret the meaning and psychologically um, incorporate the trauma. And it's also a vector of transmission, so with epigenetics and and all of that science, understanding that um, the, the passage of that trauma, even though we may not have experienced it, and it being passed down um, in our genes from traumatized uh, parents on down to future generations, we still now have that intergenerational um, traumatic experiences. When you uh, look at the loss of land, um, culture, traditions, um, the loss of of men and their role in society, their um, you can it, the impact and, and concept of historical trauma begins to make a lot of sense. Um, a lot of folks are sort of looking at the Native American community. Why do you have so many problems there? How come these haven't been 
fix that happened so far in the past. And when you look at um, several policies um, and the impact for Native Americans looking um, at very recent things like the boarding school error, looking at, um, in, in for my parents' generation, that they were still sent to boarding schools, um, looking at the 70s, at um, sterilization of Indian women, that there still are many traumatic events that are impacting um, Native American people that are not so far removed. Um, and it's not that this is particularly um, focused or unique to only American Indian, Alaska Native people. It just adds on another layer that we've had a lot of trauma. Uh, we also know that this research is, is true in Jewish Holocaust survivors and their descendants. Um, and the issues with historical trauma is that traumas are ongoing. Um, the impact of chronic poverty, food insecurity, racism, and discrimination uh, have a huge impact on Native populations today. And so when we are looking at the consequences of historical trauma, um, complex trauma, adverse childhood experiences, you can see that, that uh, you have a lot stacked against you as an American Indian Alaska Native um, young person. And that to overcome all of those things speaks um, tons and tons to your resiliency. So though all of the links for epigenetics and um, historical trauma are not completely fully understood in the way that our genes um, regulate that stress, we do know that um, that all of our that our systems can apparently be altered and um, by stress or trauma and that we may um, the impact for us may be chronically on guard um, that we may keep our stress levels at a higher level that are it's impacting our physical and mental health at significant rates so um, looking at our kids and and the impact of even having higher blood pressure, obesity, the impact of diabetes, heart disease. It starts to all make sense. You're looking at these foundational issues and you're understanding that trauma-informed care is not something that, um, that we are, should just be talking about. It's something that we should be implementing uh, across the board. So uh, despite that, you know, what can be done about ACEs? And um, since these are wide-ranging and you have um, significant health and social consequences. Uh, we want to, of course, our number one goal should be preventing those before they ever happen. That should be um, our number one goal. But understanding that safe, stable, and nurturing relationships and environments can have a completely positive impact on a broad range of health problems um, and on the development of skills that help children reach their full potential. Um, I always, uh, you know, know and and, um, and lead with experiences from my own life. I um, uh, talk about my childhood in, in a few settings about, um, I want to always honor my parents and understand uh, the trauma that they faced and how it impacted their parenting and their abilities to create a healthy, stable environment. And while it may have been really chaotic and disruptive growing up, I can't stress enough of what school meant for me. Um, school was a safe place. Uh, the time that teachers took with me, the, the belief that they instilled in me that 
I could make it, that I was a great student. Um, simple things like passing out papers, being line leader. The, the, the special attention that I can remember getting in a second grade class of how she must have known was it the way that I showed up every day? Was it the look on my face? She was an incredibly strict teacher. I can remember none of the other students. Like, they were terrified of this one. They didn't like her. Um, and she sticks out in my head so vividly about what she instilled in me and what she, what she thought of me. I can remember her saying out loud that I was smart, that uh, I was a good helper. Like she just instilled a lot of things. She may have said it to another adult while I was around, but she made a point that I've heard it. She didn't only say it to me, but she made those compliments to other people. And I can't tell you how that built it's just pieces of resilience and belief inside myself. And throughout the years of growing up, I have experience after experience, whether that was a librarian, whether that was somebody at church, that little bus that used to come around and pick you up, I love to go to church on Sunday. They had snacks and drinks, <laughs> and you could color, and you could, I was always going to be on that bus and never miss that little bus that came around the neighborhood to pick up kids and take them to church. You know, and it was those particular pieces that even learning how to pray, like, meant the world to me. Like, when, if I was ever scared or I felt like there was a moment in my life that I didn't quite know what to do, being able to pray not only that, but my mom might not have been in the best position when we were young, but that was one thing that she always taught me when I was little, to sing and to pray. And speaking Choctaw, like that was something that I could do as a little girl. And then after my parents divorced, I didn't have my mom there really to learn our language. So growing up, I literally, like I found so much comfort in whatever Choctaw words I knew, I would repeat and I would make up the rest. It was like I made up my own little Choctaw language <laughs> and tried to utilize that. It was such a source of strength to me. And you know, I can't deny that those cultural influences and understanding where I came from, and it, it was such a strong thread through my life, understanding the blood that, that I came from, who my grandparents were, you know, having our family cemetery is, is at the actual site of the Dancing Rabbit Creek Treaty where we ceded our land to the U.S. government. Like, over, over the years, it's also just helped strengthen me as an adult woman to know, wow, I came from such a source of strength, like, uh, from a group of people that completely persevered and were resilient so if, and made it. You can see where kids that are adopted, but my youngest daughter's from China, have this boy that, where do I belong? How come I was left? And to me, that's definitely the criteria for Absolutely, and you know, I think that's a, that's a great comment because the ACEs listed like these 10 um, items that could happen in your life. And it doesn't really talk about all of the other things that impact you. And so uh, while the, the list of 10 is there, it doesn't completely capture all of the things that could be considered an adverse childhood experience or that could be traumatic to you, that could cause you stress, uh, because you're constantly impacted differently. So uh, when you look at trauma and the definitions of trauma, you look at 
uh, maybe even a loss of cultural identity, feeling like, where do I belong? How do I fit in in life? Um, and things like natural disasters, um, uh, fires, the way that things impact kids aren't necessarily listed on there um, for us, even as adults, but we know that uh, the impact is still there. So definitely thanks for that comment because I don't want to mislead folks that, oh, it's only this 10. So if you experience something outside of that list of 10, that somehow it's still not going to impact you or have a significant um, influence or not influence, but just impact you in a way that, you know, may not, people may not necessarily be thinking about. Um, and when we think about what can be done and we look at things that we have in place, uh, public health nursing, <coughs> visiting programs uh, for pregnant women and families, parenting training programs, um, intimate partner violence prevention, the social support for parents, um, support groups, mental illness and substance abuse treatment, uh, high quality child care, uh, and sufficient income support for lower income families are all really important things that we know we have services and we're trying to link patients to. Uh, we know that many of these programs are really scarce. And so when we think about trauma-informed care, we're also thinking about um, a, a shift in what um, what we're doing in our settings as well because what are we really aiming to accomplish we know that we want kids growing up that um, have effective states they that we promote happiness um, we want to be able to uh, impact depression and anxiety we want to support secure attachments um, support emotional regulation and their ability to tolerate negative emotions we want to promote solid cognitive development um, and monitor and intervene early when there are possible delays. And then also help um, in the development of non-cognitive skills and help children learn when they um, lack certain opportunities in life as well. But how do we get there? Um, these are very complex health presentations, um, particularly when you're working in the Indian health system. We know that we serve a rich, um, population with culture and traditions, um, hardworking, resilient people, yet we still have this high rate of health disparities. Um, and the, the system it just seems to be a hot spot for diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, um, suicide risk, alcohol rates, substance use. If you just look at the numbers over and over and over what we're facing, and um, client, clients with this uh, type of complex health presentation have become the norm and not the exception. And so now it, it really does take a special set of skills and characteristics um, to care for uh, people that are facing this, this level of trauma in their lives. But since we've been talking for a, a long time about integrated care, uh, moving the health system in a new direction, I really do focus a lot of my talks on the nursing workforce. One, because you're the largest group of healthcare professionals out there and the opportunity to be change agents in your um, clinical setting, your hospital setting, um, whether you're administrative or at the bedside, whether you are out in the community um, or whatever setting you're in, that armed with this information and taking it out as a local champion. Um, really can be um, incredibly impactful 
especially when you're promoting that resilience piece. And so um, let's look at this resilience trailer really quickly. We all like to think of childhood as this time of joy and innocence. But I mean, for many of us, it's just not true. When you grow up in these type of situations, it's not something you, you talk about. I know I did. The first thing that we found is that after childhood experiences are common. that's where we're really positioned to start the, the movement of implementing uh, trauma-informed uh, services across, across the board in healthcare, um, just as a foundational element. And so when we talk about trauma-informed services, uh, what are we talking about? Uh, SAMHSA has issued, I think, this in, um, in one of their trauma-informed care tips, and they focus on the four R's of what trauma-informed services means. And that is uh, realizing that the widespread impact of trauma and understanding the, that there are paths to recovery, people that um, have suffered trauma in their lives lead completely productive lives. Um, recognizing the signs of symptoms in, of trauma in your clients, family, staff, and others involved with your system. Uh, responding about trauma into policies and procedures um, and practices. I think for a long time we've um, led with sort of a, a punitive approach in healthcare, and um, trauma-informed services and practices really help you examine each of those policies and why do you have them in place and are they really there to help the patient. Uh, and then you actively seek to uh, resist uh, re-traumatizing. And so trauma-informed services is, is not necessarily 
Um, what, I, what I don't want to lead folks to believe is that this is um, some sort of um, uh, customer service that we're framing this um, or repackaging the way we deliver customer service, that this really is a shift in, in some of our practices. Um, when you're looking at your organization as a whole and how trauma-informed you really are, you are looking at every aspect of care that you're delivering um, to make sure that you um, are servicing people, that you recognize the signs and symptoms of trauma, and that you put some um, mechanisms in place to make sure that you uh, are leading in a, a trauma-informed way. So you'll see a lot of different um, definitions around trauma-informed services, trauma-informed care, trauma-informed approaches, and this is a brand new sort of field very early. Um, and so I just wanted to provide a, a definition that a trauma-informed um, system is what one which is one in which all components of a given service system have been reconsidered and evaluated um, in the light of a basic understanding of the role that violence uh, plays in the lives of people seeking mental health and addiction services. Um, and that can apply to a variety of systems. It doesn't just have to be the basic health field. It can be primary care, education, child welfare, criminal justice. It can go across the board, and that's where we see the big push for community uh, trauma-informed communities. This is a huge shift from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. When we understand how trauma works and it impacts the brain and the genes and your, your response um, to the world around you, it does change everything for us. How we see clients um, really as doing the best that they can uh, will shift your focus as well. Uh, when working, we're working with our, um, with our patients and judgment is never helpful. I think that's the, the biggest piece for us. How we see our role with our patients is uh, really important. We uh, are there to provide support, uh, build on their strengths, teach new skills, connect them to um, resources, and truly caring about them uh, can go an incredibly long way. Remembering that relationships are, are primary, that they're more important than just measures, that this is um, critical to the care that, that we receive. It feels like you're going way back to the basics, right? Um, and implementing trauma-informed um, care can be one of those things that can be, it can end up being really complex when you start looking and evaluating all of your, all of your services and the policies that you have in place. Um, but at the end of the day, it should get us to um, a much healthier uh, way of delivering healthcare. Um, I think the biggest thing for for us and the work that we are tackling now is to really teach our service providers, healthcare providers across the board about trauma and how it affects uh, clients' behaviors, coping strategies, life outcomes and diseases. Um, and understanding that as a service provider that we too have these same issues, we're not immune to that just because we got into uh, the field of nursing or medicine. Um, that we have our own triggers and our own issues that we need to be keenly aware of as well. And then changing those service policies and procedures that um, aren't working to support our patients or clients um, and that may trigger um, trauma <coughs> symptoms or um, re-traumatize folks. And then looking at the coordination and provision of services. This is um, you know, one of the things that we try to tackle a lot in healthcare, right, is coordinating all of these services um, for patients. Because if they're 
worried about food and finances and transportation and housing. It's really hard to get your diabetes under control, uh, your depression under control when you're focused so much on the basics and necessities in life. Some of the most trauma-informed things that we can do, of course, is number one, prevent it. Um, I talked earlier about home visiting interventions. Um, the Nurse Family Partnership, Family Spirit is specific to American Indians, Alaska Natives. It's a home visiting program uh, for, for parents and, uh, and children, parents of children from zero to three years of age. Um, and then it, it's shown great significant evidence-based outcomes in American and Alaska Native communities. And then of course screening, detecting, and intervening, intervening in children as, as early as possible. So um, looking if you work in well child clinics or uh, Head Start daycare schools, um, looking at uh, training those providers and those service providers on screening for trauma. There are multiple tools out there and there's not uh, just one that will work for any particular um, place. We're looking specifically at um, a couple of screeners, like ages and stages. So it's not necessarily looking and screening specifically for trauma, but you are looking at even development and um, other components. And then, of course, um, there are other models out there. Um, the Needing Bird Paris from the Resilience trailer that you saw. I think utilizing the both of those. Um, those documentaries, so Paper Tigers and, um, and Resilience are powerful tools to start the conversation. We've shown those um, in American and Alaska Native communities across the nation, and the response has been so overwhelming um, of folks wanting to implement these types of services. And when I talk about screening, detecting, and intervening, and really recognizing the symptoms, we've talked a lot about kids. Um, these are a lot of the sort of your symptom checklist. Um, that apply primarily to adults. And um, so I think it's important as you move forward in your work and you guys start thinking about implementing trauma-informed care, understanding that you have an entire adult population that you need to um, address as well. We want to really work hard to prevent it in our kids, um, but we have work to do in our adult populations as well. Um, and then just the goal of those overall programs is really to increase resilience and reduce the trauma. Um, we sort of went over all of these things um, already. But what steps um, can each of us take? And, and I like to, um, to talk to those of us that um, are either in a supervisor role or even if you're not, if you're an informal leader in your community leading by, or in your um, work setting, leading by example, um, honoring sort of those core uh, trauma-informed supervision principles of um, creating safety. And what we mean by that is um, creating safe and secure environments that it's okay to explore your challenges and concerns and creating that environment where there's not a fear of judgment. Um, being transparent about uh, mistakes and your biases um, being vulnerable and just always being in a constant learning stance um, with either those folks that you supervise or, um, like I said, in um, it's amazing what a colleague can do uh, and, and help you work through, especially if mistakes happen, um, and being there to just really focus on a strength-based environment versus um, putting in place something that's judgment uh, 
or um, full of consequences or or negative sort of um, perspectives and, and environment. And it, so I just want to make sure that what we're doing here is that we're um, empowering one another, that we know that we have a voice and a choice in things, that we're responsibility responsible for our own work, but we're also um, keenly aware of one another as humans and the, and the experience that trauma may have for us, um, and understanding that, uh, that we have an incredible uh, responsibility for not only self-care, but promoting self-care among our colleagues as well. Um, and the advantages of having trauma-informed supervision um, it does help promote staff retention, reduces turnover, reduces levels of vicarious trauma um, experienced by staff, and influences the super um, their, or the employee of their ability to more effectively cope with their work, um, and is associated with greater resilience among workers as well. And so, I think that you know the piece that I always like to to take away is we we. Um, oftentimes talk a lot about secondary um, traumatic stress or vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, and we know that that is very real and that it is a tough, a tough issue to tackle in our work. Um, when you sort of look through your symptom checklist and you understand that uh, we may be, uh, someone may be suffering some burnout, kind of like sort of start identifying it and what are those places as even local champions and where you work, um, where you can help promote the self-care and taking care of one another. Um, our workforce has a lot ahead of it and uh, has heavy responsibilities to um, tackle in trauma and other things. And so I think if we can keep this work very foundational to what we do and lead with, um, with trauma-informed care um, services and approaches, uh, as one of those um, very first tools that we kind of put in our tool belt that we would be able to impact um, our patients just as significantly as we can um, impact our, our lives, creating healthy work environments. Um, and it is possible even in turmoil and chaos and change to create bubbles around yourselves, whether that's your work unit, um, and help to increase morale and support of one another. So I, I can't stress enough that, um, that we have used blame, shame, and punishment um, to try to change behaviors, whether that's in a work environment or with our patient population. Um, we want to use this to change unhealthy behaviors, criminal behaviors, um, any kind of non-conforming behavior. Uh, but we just have so much evidence now that this approach doesn't work very well. Um, we have overcrowded prisons, um, rampant chronic disease, struggling schools, um, and we know that with our knowledge and the science behind understanding, nurturing, and healing, that we can change, uh, change that uh, paradigm from blame, shame, and punishment uh, to one that says, uh, what happened to you? How can I help you? And helping people help themselves to heal. Um, so I hope that this has just been a really big overview of trauma-informed care. It gives you a few snippets of, to think about 
um, and how you could possibly go about trauma-informed care. There's tons of resources out there, um, not only on the IndianHealthServiceIHS.gov website, but also um, at SAMHSA and Administration for Children's and Family. They'll take you to um, multiple websites. Um, I think that the biggest piece is starting to look at an organizational assessment and where you are organizationally. Um, forming those teams, whether that's around your unit or around your medical center as a whole, um, is a great start to start um, the process of bringing your entire workforce into understanding more about trauma and its impacts and how you can do something to implement trauma-informed care um, and use those approaches in your work. So that concludes, and I'm happy to take any uh, questions that you guys may have. people out in the field network with each other to support um, trauma-informed care approaches so that in rural and remote areas, um, you know, sometimes you need a colleague to help you work through some of the very complex problems that people have. Is there a way that they can interconnect uh, using these types of methods? So um, what we've done so far is started working locally at the local level, um, started working through some organizational assessments for us, and then bringing in sort of the local partners um, so that we're not just implementing trauma-informed care only in our healthcare system. We are focused heavily on the organizational assessments within our, within our health system. Um, but that is primarily the work that we've been trying to pour some resources into local communities of education and awareness, um, bringing higher visibility around the issue, and then helping our service units deliver that. The biggest, and then the, and then the second, probably heaviest focus for us is, is training our management and leadership in trauma-informed supervision, trying to create those work environments um, that help to increase all of those things that were on that last slide. Um, and then from a national standpoint, um, pouring out the resources and technical assistance because this is new, it feels heavy, it, and it often feels like you don't want me to do one more thing. Um, and that this is not a new initiative or uh, a new just thing of the, you know, that we're, we're talking about, but this, we want trauma-informed care to really be foundational to all of our work. Thank you so much. Thank you.